know what that means? Everything. Anglo-thieves. Gettle's gone. Oh my god, you people have just failed me. Failed me utterly. Congratulations, Scotland. We have just gone full brigadier. That just explains so much of my childhood to me. Research purposes. It's super important. I hear an awful lot of judgment in your voice. Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode 35 of Anglo Fees, where we're going to talk about comic books, which I really can't believe that it's taken us 35 episodes to talk about that. But there's been so much other stuff to talk about. I'm Raiden. I'm Alina. And I'm Kaylee. And we are joined today by the awesome Mickey Kendall, who some other people like me know as Carnithia. And she. Carnithia! 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 Terrible. Sorry. I'm the worst friend ever. <laughs> you said that, not us. I know my place. Anyway. Where she has just, well, not just, but it was soon to be released, her first comic book that she wrote that we're very proud of and other comic booky things. And she writes stuff and things and uh, is currently now boiling water in Chicago. Now until the end of... <laughs> we're not going to talk about this boil order or my mayor because then your listeners would be like, oh, I'm a little horrified. <laughs> it's possible it's possible that you know i've taken indoor functional indoor plumbing and water filtration for granted all these years and losing it has me upset which is legit okay so um hi everybody i'm mickey aka carnithia 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 i don't know why red is so attached to carnithia i'm not sure but 13-year-old me is offended. Okay. Thanks for having me on. 13-year-olds <laughs> are offended by everything, though. What's your point? I'm just saying. All right. Long <laughs> as you know. So, Swords of Sorrow, <clears throat> Miss Fury and Lady Rawhide special is uh, due in, what, two days? Yes, it comes out um, September 2nd. I am going to run around like a chicken with my head cut off all day that day. If you are wondering why you see reports of a woman running screaming through the streets of Chicago, I will also say that um, next week I am doing some filming with Showtime for a documentary. So what? there'll be a- yes. Oh my god, that's awesome. <laughs> it only sounds awesome when you're not trying to figure out how to structure this week. <laughs> yeah, well. In between the water boiling and the muffins, which sound delicious. Oh, pomegranate vodka brown sugar it's all the right things i'm not even gonna you know i will say they sound delicious even with the desecration of the the sacred drink of vodka do russians How not is do anything in a vodka <laughs> russians don't do infused vodka hold on why would you ruin perfectly good vodka with fruity things because you can drink more vodka and then you can have your regular vodka mm-hmm. and your flavored vodkas of many kinds that's why I know Mickey's new. Why the two of you are reacting this surprise? This is a fight we have on a regular basis. Is it? 
I don't recall actually having this fight before. That's because there's vodka involved. <laughs> I feel like I regularly scream at North Americans for, you know, yeah, doing things to vodka. Us. Not me. No, we've never had this discussion. Right. Also, I, I mean, I'm brand new to the discussion, but have you had proper infused vodka? Have you had proper vodka is my question to the rest yes. of the world. Yes. I have had both proper vodka and proper vodka infused with fruit flavors. Yes. Did you know that proper vodka with old pineapple left sitting in it for a while is amazing. Okay, amazing. but pineapple though. You can use pomegranate seeds. You can use strawberries. You I can use have used pomegranate. I have in my liquor cabinet right now. I have a blood orange cordial and an apple cinnamon cordial that I made. Ooh. Yeah. 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 Oh, so you so take nice. the oranges and you shove it in a gallon jug and you pour in a crap ton of sugar and then a little bit more. And then you cover it all with vodka and you ignore it for a couple of months. <laughs> I am sitting here with my face in my hands. This is why we need to actually have a proper Anglofies meeting so that we can bring you to the ways of infused vodka. Because raspberry yeah. vodka is amazing. I mm-hmm. hate so good. all of you yes. right now. <laughs> peak Russian. Peak Russian. Yep. Basil vodka. Ooh. Oh, wow. So good. Yeah. I had a, I think, a rosemary-infused vodka once. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, savory martinis are a thing. It's weird. But it was really good. But it was weird. You're just making me even sadder that all I have in the house is rosé right now. Good. We were sad for you to begin with. We were, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was rosé. <laughs> Sorry, uh, we will wander off into food and booze apparently very easily. Yep. Yeah. Okay. I'm a terrible podcast guest. I'm sorry. Uh, yeah, but awesome. you're a wonderful hostess because <laughs> I came over to your house and you, you know, shoved food in my face. I believe in food. And then you were like, "Have some macaroni and cheese." <laughs> and then you shot me in the face with a Nerf gun. So. Well, that know. seems appropriate, though. Yeah. No, I'm not arguing. Part of me is going, there must be a story there, but the other part of me is going, no, this is better without the story. Let it just be a fact. <laughs> Every so it's... often, Nerf gun wars break out in her house. Yeah, all you have to say is one, two, three, four, I declare a Nerf war. Everyone knows it means you scramble for your weapons and off you go. Do you have the Nerf weapons hidden in strategic locations in the house? Yes. Okay. They're all over the place. Mm-hmm. Are there Nerf guns in the comic? No. No, there are real guns in the comic. And swords, obviously. That hmm. segue was amazing, by the way. <laughs> that was. That was an amazing segue. Now, though, I'm trying to figure out how to work Nerf guns into a comic, just because that would be so great. Yeah. I, it's going to happen now. Yeah, I have read it. Um, Mickey did send me the, the preview. And it's really good. I have no idea what's going on, but it's okay. <laughs> I think maybe we can give a little rundown on the Swords of Sorrow kind of line itself, just as Mm -hmm. background. So, published by Dynamite. It has kind of, I guess, two lines. There's the main uh, issues, which are, I believe, all of them are written by Gail Simone. Mm -hmm. And then there's also these side stories in the project, the specials, and yours is one of the specials. 
Right. They're the one shots so that you kind of see as you lead into the big finale that's coming up where the other warriors are coming from and what's happening with them and how they kind of get there. Tell us the story of how uh, you came around to write this because I read an interview where you mentioned it and it's a good story. So. (laughs) (laughs) So we're going back to food. We're going back to food and social media. So I first met Gail on, I think, Tumblr. It might have been Twitter. We talked on one of those two platforms. I have both, so I can't remember anybody's any differences. And at some point while talking on Twitter, this much I know for sure, she mentioned that she was always jealous when she'd see me tweeting about cupcakes because she has uh, celiac, so she can't have cake unless it's, glu- unless it's gluten-free. And I was like, oh, I'll make you gluten-free cupcakes. That's fine. Whenever you're in town. She came to Chicago for C2E2, and I brought her cupcakes at a signing she was doing in a local comic shop. And this is the part where it's going to make your listeners stare at the walls and question their lives. I'm sorry. But we got to talking about my fiction, and she asked to read it. And I thought she was being polite, but she reminded me. So when Gail Simone asks you if she can read your stories, you show them to her. This is important. This is a key part of this. <laughs> And so you show her show you show her your fiction. And then when she asks if you have any interest in writing comics, you say yes. Also important. Then when she says, hey, I want to talk to you about comics. If you're me, you assume that she's going to tell you about how you could put out this thing, this comic book, that, of indie comic that you've been thinking about doing. What she actually does is say, I want to put your name in for this project. And again, yes is important here because you say yes to that then you wait and then dynamite comes back and in a stunning twist of fate because you would never let yourself get your hopes up because you've never written a comic at all in your life not once dynamite says okay sure and then you would become a part of the project so the moral of the story is everyone has to say yes to gail simone to gail simone (laughs) maybe not to other people Mm mm-hmm so I was curious, did you get to choose which characters or was it, or did they give you like a stable of characters to choose from and then you had to pick or how does that work? So it was a weird mix of, we knew we would have a stable of characters to choose from. Some people already had claims because of other series they were working on, which left people like me who were new to kind of take what was left. But then in terms of what was happening with our characters, we could pick our villains. So my heroes were sort of chosen for me in the sense that there weren't that many options, but then I got to pick my villains. And in fact, one of the the villains in the story originally wasn't in the stable. And I thought she was for some reason, don't ask me, or maybe it's just because I liked chaos comics as a kid. That might be actually what happened. And they let me keep her. Nice. Yeah. So what's the process like? Do you just take the characters and really get to run with it? Or was there more of a group collaboration? Or was this another case of, I will just do what Gail Simone tells me to do because it's really the way to live life? (laughs) So we have um, this email chain. We call ourselves the She-Vendors, all the women involved in the project. And so we we have t-shirts too. It's awesome. (laughs) Um, So then we talked back and forth about the basic, the spine and where things were going. Um, And then in terms of the one shots like mine, there was sort of a basic framework of you have to get your two people together. But that's the most big that that was it. You had to get them together. How you got them together, 
whether they fought a bunch, what their enemy situation looked like, that part was all up to us. So once you kind of send your framework back and say, well, here's what I'm thinking I want to do, Dynamite and Gail basically said, all right, or at least that was my experience. I had a very pleasant dreamlike quality throughout this process that means that I am like the worst and most unreliable narrator of comics writing because this was awesome. <laughs> How did they put you together with your artist? Was that, uh, did you have input or did they just, did you even know who it was going to be when you were writing? So they send you artists to look at, like their work to look at. It so happened that the very first artist they sent me was Renelson. And he was one of, I think, two or three options. I'm not sure. I have to go look at the email now. But I clicked on his portfolio and was like, this guy, him, I want that guy. That's my guy. And they kind of laughed and were like, we thought you were going to pick him. <laughs> Is there a lot of feedback the artist gives you when you submit the story? In terms of like, you can't do this in comics or I can't show this or I need more dialogue here, things like that. Um, I didn't have any of that. I cannot say that people don't get that. I know that they do. I kind of cheated. I'm married to an artist who illustrates. So before I set my script in, my final script in, you, the way comic scripts are, are structured, you describe the scene for each panel. So I had him read my descriptions to make sure they would make sense to an artist. That's handy. That's totally cheating, though. <laughs> I mean, he's in my room. Like, I married him. You've so, got to use the resources that are available to you. It's exactly. True. I mean, you know, there's this guy in my house that he draws and stuff, and he knows what... It, what what the instructions are supposed to look like and what makes sense. And he's a big comics fan. And Hey, read this thing and tell me if it works. What else would you do? So there's, I'm guessing you actually got to hold it in your hand. Like you have your advanced copies and probably the regular copies now. What's that like? Cause it's your first one, right? So it's possible. I was seven years old and I ran up and showed it to people. <laughs> I might have gone to visit relatives and bring them copies. There was neener, neener, neener happening <laughs> in some places, maybe. Also, I discovered that I am now officially cool mom, according to my 16-year-old son and his friends, what, largely what, because... What, what, wait, wait, I'm sorry. He's 16 already? Yes. How'd that happen? He kept getting bigger. He's six one. Jesus <laughs> Christ. So, you know, sorry, I'm just, I'm just feeling old again. I mean, you we've known each other what since he was maybe five, so yeah, you should, yeah, 10 or 11 years, yeah, yeah, you should feel old. I don't, I refuse to, but <laughs> that's mostly because he has this thing where he walks up and he kisses me on the forehead now, he's very smug, but uh, no, so I'm officially cool because I write comics, I'm gonna do, um, I'm speaking at Graham Crackers. Um, in the loop on Wednesday and eventually I'm going to do some signings and stuff and apparently that also makes me cool. I was not cool before. I am certain this coolness is short-lived. Yeah, you just have to keep writing more comic books. I'm trying to make that happen. Yeah. <sighs> is there anything on the horizon on that front that you can talk about or is it just kind of trying to find the, the route in again or whatever? I, I don't know the 
Delingo. Well, I have, <laughs> I have, I have a pitch in that I can't really talk about, but I can say that I haven't gotten a no on it, and they've had it for a while, so I don't think I'm getting a no, but I'm not sure. And then I can talk about the indie project that my husband and I are working on, um, Alice in Jazzland, which... Oh! Yeah. So I was about to ask, <clears throat> you once mentioned in an interview, a steampunk jazz age fairy tale, is that happening? And I'm guessing that's it? Yes. Um, <laughs> so the problem with the steampunk jazz age thing was that I am apparently incapable of turning that into a novel, which was mm-hmm. my original idea. I am not a person who writes the florid descriptions of what things look like. Tolkien does that. I do not. However, in comics format, Alice can go to Jazzland. Um, in this case, Alice is a black girl from the South who has come north to Chicago um, and is a chorus dancer in what it here is called the Stroll and black, black, the Black Belt of Chicago, which is segregated Chicago. Mm-hmm. And without getting too much into detail, she doesn't go to Wonderland. She goes to Jazzland, and it's very steampunk. It's very, it's very weird. But I I love black girl adventure stories. There's not enough of them, so I'm going to write them all. I'm here for it. You're easy. I so. really am, though. <laughs> Did you know that actress Amanda Stanberg is writing a comic book called Niobe? I heard something about it, but I haven't heard the actual details yet. It's her and another writer, and it was in the news within the last week or so because they'd gotten um, an artist announcement, I believe that was. Uh, so it's for sure happening, and it's a. it looks like it's a fantasy adventure uh, about an elf, a black elf named Niobe. I don't know much details about it, I, I was just, but the art on the cover looks really pretty, mm-hmm. and... I just remember seeing Amanda Stanberg's name and thinking, I know her as an actress, but she's, you know, now she's writing a comic book. And I kind of have to admire her age, the, she's still a teenager, the take charge attitude of, I'm going to make this happen if nobody's making it happen for me. I'm just going to write my own. I think she's adorable and awesome. I love that she's like, yeah, you'll be all right. You don't have to like what I'm doing. I'm going to do it anyway. Mm. Like, that's, that's the best... (laughs) If I could go back and talk to 16-year-old me, I'd be like, yeah, be more that way. Way easier. <laughs> what? When I was 16, I still cared if people liked me. Yeah. Sick. Yeah. Life becomes much easier when you run out of fucks to give. Right? Yeah, I wish I'd figured that and out. And Amanda's starting out. Like, yeah. Amanda's hitting the ground. Like, yeah, I don't care. My mama loves me. My people love me. Uh, the rest of you do, do what you do. I'm like, Yes. Take over the world. Uh, so back to the Alice in Jazzland. Uh, you, do you have a background in music, or uh, do you, are you just a fan of jazz? Is there any special reason? So, a I love Roaring Twenties. B I grew up with music. I have one of those houses, and I grew up one of grew up with the family that music is on all the time. So even though I don't have a background myself in music, because it turns out that while I am coordinated and great at certain things. The patience to actually learn a musical instrument isn't on that list. Admittedly, part of that was because in being a girl, people try to keep you from playing things like the sax. They want you to, you know, play the piano, and the piano is boring. It just is. And if someone's going to respond and be like, no, it's not, I'm going to be like, yes, yes, it was. Playing scales <laughs> and piano lessons, boring as shit. But so I, I always loved that era in Chicago, and it's funny because 
hear a lot about Harlem in the Roaring Twenties. You don't hear a lot about the Black Belt in the Roaring Twenties. But my family was here, and I have all these pictures and family stories, and I just really wanted to kind of play on that. To kind of talk about that sort of not really lost but sort of forgotten history, because a lot of those buildings are still here. A lot of those traditions are still, you know, part of Chicago, you know, policy and all of these things. And policy, I'm sorry. Policy, for those who don't know what I'm talking about, is running numbers. Um, mm-hmm. It was illegal gambling in the 20s. My grandmother ran numbers. My great-grandmother ran numbers. It's a whole thing. Uh, <laughs> I come from a family of crooks. But no, so I grew up with those stories. And I grew up with men with names like Policy John come, coming to the house. And so I really think it would be great to have an adventure story that is sort of set in a twist on that world. Vice fascinates me. Well, yeah, that's where all the fun stuff happens. Exactly. Says the lawyer. <laughs> this is a criminal lawyer. I only went into law to learn more about crime, so. I mean, Red, Red is the person in Boston that I call if I do something. All right, I keep telling her not to do things. And so far, she hasn't. She's taken my advice, so. Well, you know, the one time at Rizia, I wasn't so much as I took your advice as it was that Patrick is really fast. <laughs> yeah. I don't even remember who was involved in that, but yeah. Well, M was trying to get a hold of you because she thought I was going to charge the stage and smash this woman's face into the table. That wasn't necessarily an erroneous assumption. Mm-hmm. And then Patrick is my husband, and my husband has had a long, illustrious life with me of um, <laughs> being the voice of reason. He's the one that designed my wedding ring so that it would channel force away from the stone. <laughs> it's possible. He has, he has his hands full, and he knows it. Maybe. Yeah. <laughs> and this is why they work as a couple. Yeah. Yeah, he's my baby. She's making a schmoopy face at him right now. I can hear it in her voice. I so am. <laughs> I don't judge. Don't judge the schmoop. I am not judging the schmoop. I think it's adorable, and okay. I kind of adore. I love you too. Yay! I just want to know. I have a question for Aiden. Why is it that my husband spent, you know, two years being referred to as the mythological husband? <laughs> But you are the friend's husband. Apparently, really exist. Uh, well, <laughs> I've known her for way longer than I've known you. Okay, fair enough. And 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 I've act- I actually met him. I met yeah. Patrick a couple of times, and even before I met him, I actually saw pictures. As opposed to like we didn't even hear Jim's voice for the first year or so. I told him to be quiet. I had specific instructions not to interfere with my <laughs> podcast recording. <laughs> right. So there was no proof that he was real. As opposed to my cat, who who cannot be directed in that way. Exactly. The cat was obviously real. The husband, not so much. But I've met him. He's real, I guess. And probably not an actor hired by Alina. So I... <laughs> Why would he be an actor? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know why people do things. We're in a post-catfish world here. You know, that is that is unfortunately true. I was having this conversation. Um, my my son is dating someone who lives in Philly. 
and we live in Chicago. And so I was having this conversation with my, my aunt who was like, you know, how you know it's not a catfish, blah, blah, blah. And I'm explaining about Skype and cameras and all of these things. And my aunt is at that weird place where she both kind of understands technology and still calls me to figure out why she can't edit PDFs. <laughs> right. Um, so we're having the like, what do you mean? He, he, the, the camera makes a difference. They can fool those two. And so then I had to explain that like, motion was harder to fake and and you know seeing people on a camera is actually really sort of like the catfish test now that you you kind of know if you've met someone online and you've never seen them and never seen them never done a, a g plus or, or skype call with with a video camera that maybe they're not real particularly romantically and it turned into because i was at one of my aunt's aka events aka being the black greek organization um, and I'm at a table full of older older black women who all have that same odd understanding of technology into a whole discussion about how to tell if someone was a catfish. And then I had to explain Tinder. Oh, no. <laughs> oh. Right. And so I, I feel like in this post-catfish world, it might not actually be inaccurate to question because more than one of them watches catfish. Their elders are watching MTV. They're watching catfish and fascinated. This makes me think of an article that was, I think it was on Gizmodo or one of those sites, uh, but it's related to the recent Ashley Madison leak. And some journalists went there through the leak numbers to try to figure out the numbers of users identified as male versus users identified in, as female on Ashley Madison, and then how many of those female-identified accounts seemed like they were actual real accounts. Mm-hmm. The basic conclusion you could draw from his numbers is that there were no women on Ashley Madison. Yeah, I think they figured out that there was something like maybe 10% of the women were real. Yeah. And the women were already a minute percentage of the total user base. Right. So all of Dan Savage's advice to... Look, if you can't get it any other place, hop on Ashley Madison just to keep your marriage together. Mm-hmm. It's like, oh, honey, I mean, no, it's not going to work out the way you want it to. People are still turning to Dan Savage for advice? Oh, yeah. Ooh. Here's the funny thing. Of the stories that have trickled uh, into various articles online about people claiming to have had actual, to be actual users of Ashley Madison... Um, and their experiences using it. The only ones that have ended, or you know, if, those, if you assume the stories to be true, ended in hookups were gay hookups. So my conclusion is that Ashley Madison should just rebrand itself as a gay dating site. I think that's their way out of this, because apparently that's the only sex that was happening through Ashley Madison anyway. I don't. I don't think they have a way out of this since their whole deal was, you know, your information's totally secure and safe, and not so much. I don't know. The Ashley Madison thing has been pretty weird to me in general because it seems like a lot of work. Yeah. A lot of risk. I mean, you could just go to a bar. You talk could. to women at a bar. I don't, I don't... Uh, women are scary. <laughs> I think that's why people turn to that and I think maybe a lot of them just preferred the idea of planning an affair more than actually having an affair. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's so, true. You still get your edge to actually having to leave the house. Yeah. Which I understand the benefit of that. No pants required. <laughs> mm-hmm. You certainly don't have to shave your legs or anything. 
Well, they weren't going to shave their legs anyway. Well, I know. But you know what I'm saying. Right. Well, also, though, this way, in the terms of the whole planning an affair and whatever, um, without actually getting around to having the affair, they don't have to worry about any actual long-term, assuming the wife didn't find out, there's no long-term consequences, right? There's right. no risk of pregnancy. There's no risk of, you know, someone showing up at your doorstep or on your job or whatever. Theoretically, anyway. There's Theoretically. just flirting online. Still seems like paying for that is a lot. Yeah, the yeah. biggest problem is it might come up on your joint credit card bill, but other than that, why are you paying for anything on the internet like that? Right. Well, that's what I'm thinking. I'm like, wait, but, you know, you could also just do that on Twitter. Right. On. You do that on Twitter. You could hop on OkCupid. You could hop on Tinder, for fuck's sake. And, and then, listen, and back to Tinder, but let me also just say that explaining Tinder to a 65-year-old is not... Not your idea of fun? Let's never do that again. <laughs> Let's okay. never, ever do that again. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And then I had to talk her out of going to see Straight Out of Compton. <laughs> <laughs> There's nothing better than someone saying, Ice? Baby, what was his name? Ice what? It's that movie about him. Okay. No. No, you shouldn't go see that. No, auntie. No. <laughs> Oh, God. <laughs> you enjoying my pain. Just I really flat. am, and I'm not even sorry. <laughs> like, this is that deep, healthy place laugh. Like, Yes, it is. <laughs> oh, poor Mickey. Life's tough. You know, just for that, I hope that's one of your relatives pick, a, pick an older one a really old one that's really crotchety comes to you and says baby I got a boyfriend <laughs> <laughs> and, it, and it turns out to be someone she met on FetLife just for that okay <laughs> just well, so she can tell you all about it the, the only crotchety relatives I have who aren't dead no I don't have any they all died. <laughs> Have I told you lately how much I don't like you, Red? <laughs> you adore me. <laughs> I'm greatly enjoying this. <laughs> <sighs> I'm sorry. We're actually insane. I don't yeah, know if, if Red actually warned you about that part. Yeah, I'm, I'm leisurely considering hurting us back onto comics, and then I'm thinking, why? I can just sit back and enjoy this. <laughs> I mean, we can go back to comics. Absolutely. So, Mickey, what other comics do you enjoy reading? I'm just going to um, giggle over here for a while. <laughs> monster. Monster. Um, so, I am actually going to be a terrible comics person and say that most of what I enjoy is random indie stuff. I've really been in a lot of web comics lately. Uh, 100 Days of Night, which is this Persephone Hades retelling. Questionable content. I know someone's going to be like, what is wrong with you? Something positive. Wapsy Square. Um, and then I really like The Crow. I know someone's going to really look at me right now and be like, how old are you? Are you, are you still 16 and gothy? What is that? But I also like to read some of some of the caves. I do. I, I love Wonder Woman and I 
well, I don't actually love Storm right now. Not that I don't love the character. I just don't love what's happening with her. I need more. I need better things for Storm than this protracted breakup with T'Challa and Sorrow. I need a happy Storm. Damn it. But no, I, I am a, I'm a weird comic reader. I like comics. I enjoy the medium. I have a tendency to wander off based solely off things people suggest to me. Um, Run, Love, Kill... John Suey's book is really, really good. Bitch Planet is another one that I like. You you see why I say I have a tendency to wander off into weird spaces. In fairness, Bitch Planet is amazing. I'm sick of waiting for issue five. I really want it. Uh, you mentioned in uh, an interview I found that if you had a chance to tell, you know, any comic story you could, um, that you would tell the origin of Harley Quinn and Joker's relationship. <gasps> yes. Yes. Yes, please. So the thing that bugs me about Harley Quinn and Joker is that we know that she was his therapist and then we know that she becomes Harley Quinn and helps break him out of jail. We don't know hardly anything in between, right? He talks to her a couple times and suddenly she falls over for him. I just don't think that's how it works. I also, however, think that a story about Harley and explaining how Harley gets from point A to point B would be way more disturbing than just the Joker twisted her up and, and sent her forth as his little minion. I think it would be more like Harley was already twisted and there are these things and she's tried to be good. And then when being good doesn't work, that's when the Joker becomes more attractive to her. In fact, I would even hazard, I know it's very common to write it as though he's particularly abusive to her, that he would be the one who was kind to her. As twisted as that is, I think that the Joker, the only way that relationship makes sense to me is if Harley's had a life of not of good people not actually being good to her. And it's the bad guy who's good to her. I'm here that for would it. make more sense. I wouldn't read that. As, my, yeah. as much as I love Harley Quinn, I've had to read so many comics where she is just treated like a punching bag. And there's a scene in the Suicide Squad trailer where Margot Robbie is just strapped to a table crying. And it's like, oh, okay, we're going with that. Of course we're going with that. It's DC. Right. And I just, I don't think that's, the same Harley who was a genius and a doctor and all of these things and who partners up wonderfully with um, Poison Ivy, in my mind anyway, is not a Harley who just passively accepts this stuff because she doesn't have a choice. That's, that's, doesn't make any sense. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's one of the things I like about the current run of Catwoman is, you know, she's not, um, some sort of entirely sexualized common thief. You know, she's an extremely smart, capable, and ruthless woman who's in charge of a much larger organization. Mm-hmm. You just give some of these characters things to do, and I think honestly, that's where DC's struggling a little bit right now. Particularly when it comes to their women characters, it's well, really I, hard for them to write, find a Wonder Woman writer for, that's good for one thing. Well, and I think part of the problem is that the, it, it has not occurred to them yet. That they're going to have to write women the same the same complicated way that they write male soups, mm-hmm. right? It's not abnormal for us to see, you know, women as sidekick, not necessarily women as active protagonists with a complicated backstory, a la the long, long, long winded thing about Batman and his parents. I might be over Batman and his parents. Sorry, I might be over Batman some days. <laughs> <laughs> I think the only yeah. people that aren't over Batman right now are Ben Affleck and Zack Snyder. Yeah. Seriously, I'm over Batman. I'm over the Spider-Man retellings. I don't actually need to see Spider-Man's origin story ever again. again. Ever <laughs> again. 
Mel- I certainly don't think that Black Panther and Captain Marvel need to be pushed back so we can get another Spider-Man retelling Marvel. Oh. I'm not even sure why we're... Like, he wasn't even one of the major characters in the Avengers early on, so he could wait. He could. Yeah. I also am really pissed about Janet Van Dyne not being there, so I'm an unreliable comics narrator right now. <laughs> because I really, I really love Wasp, and I'm really mad that Wasp is not part of Ant-Man. So, biased... Bias to the left of you, bias to the right of you. Bias, bias, bias. That's me. It's okay. We don't actually pretend we're not unbiased. Oh, good. Or we don't pretend. You know what I mean. This is a podcast where we get righteously pissed off about things. Yeah, right. <laughs> a lot. <laughs> I, I really, seriously, I just think that it, it would be so much better for Marvel and for DC if they'd embrace the idea that they could tell a more complicated story and that they could tell new stories. I know we're supposed to believe that comics geekery is like this brand new thing. I'm not sure why we're supposed to believe that, but I feel like at this point, 99.9% of the viewership does not need to be reminded of how Spider-Man came to be. I feel like it's such a part of the cultural zeitgeist that we can just move on. Word. Snaps. Whatever. Did you say snaps? I did say snaps. <laughs> I'm judging you so hard right now. You judge me all the time. How is this any different? I, but you deserve this judging. Yeah. I feel like to somebody who's actually a lawyer, legally blonde references, though, are culturally permissible. Um, no, legally blonde references are culturally required. <laughs> You're a lawyer. Of course they are. Yes. She was going to say that anyway. <laughs> Lawyers make themselves right even when they're wrong. Okay, but in this case, I'm actually right, though. You know. <laughs> you're such a handful. Um, pot, kettle. What? <laughs> I, I feel like you were trying to convey this notion that I, I could be a handful in the way that you are a handful. No, you are a handful in your own special, unique way. No. I'm a sweetheart. Also that. You know, not five minutes ago, you were telling us about how your husband has to live with the fact that you're a handful. I don't think you can turn around on this now. Mm -hmm. Oh, I absolutely can. I'm a fiction writer. We can say anything. (laughs) (laughs) You keep telling yourself that, boo, but we have you on the record. Remember, I'm I'm from a city where you know we our mayors go to jail. Like, we believe in lying, on on under oath and on tape. We do. No, 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 no. I am pulling us out of the mire of Chicago politics. <laughs> so tell us a little more about your fiction, off comics. Uh, what else do you write? So I write really weird um, sci-fi fantasy stuff. I'm trying to figure out how to explain it because I I don't actually believe in genre lines, strict genre lines. I think it's stupid. So, I, you might find some lesbian um, steampunk. Actually, I have a story, Copper for a Trickster, that came out a few years ago. That's um, sort of a lesbian steampunk Lovecraftian situation. Because, I don't know, that made sense to me at the time. It involved wire fairies and Native American deities. I, I can't explain that to you any better. <laughs> Um, I also write things, um, historical leaning, I have a degree in history, and like every other historian who writes, we can't help 
putting shoving all the history we can into everything it's not our fault it's our training it's required it's contractually required and so i write weird historic twists with magic historic magical realism historic magical realism is there a word for that i don't know but there kind of needs to be because you're not the only one who does it right and I, i literally shoved magic into um an actual historical event the race riots of 1919 and the Red Summer. So it worked, I think. It, it did, the story did pretty well. People seemed to like it. But I'm not really sure how to explain to people who don't read that kind of thing what it is I'm doing because mostly people wind up looking at me like, you write what? Huh? A lot. You get a lot of huh. So, you know, what's interesting. Let's bring you into this discussion. Uh, before we started the recording today, uh, the three of us were talking about a discussion that's happening on Smart Bitch Trashy Books, a website where Raiden reviews books and moderates. And it has to do, it's discussing um, a historical novel. And um, the discussion has to do with realism versus kind of fake historical facts that readers nonetheless expect. So how much real history you put into a book versus how much expected history you put into a book so that the readers get the atmosphere they expect, even though it might not be actually real. And th- there's that conversation happening. So you being a his- uh, writer who's a historian and who also writes historical fiction, I think it would be an interesting viewpoint to get input from. So I am a big fan. If you're going to use a historical event and insert magic or whatever, that your basic history still be respectful. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know how many if you all have discussed the concentration camp romance <laughs> uh-huh. I'm guessing you have because I know red and uh-huh. I can actually pretty much imagine that that conversation was red frothing at the mouth uh-huh. and making sounds that frightened readers who had never you know heard you like that before well they, they ha- I mean like me frothing at the mouth happens a lot on this podcast I mean, I am assuming it does. I just, you know, (laughs) if you had anybody new, I'm pretty sure they were like, is she having a a stroke? What is happening? Because I've heard you. And the first time I heard it, I was like concerned for you. (laughs) That might just be projection. I don't know. Um, But no. So I think it's important to be respectful, right? You can't erase the people that actually happened to or the actual impact. I think you can certainly talk about mundane sort of changes that could have happened somewhere in the story. I am co-editing this anthology, uh, Hidden Youth, uh, with Cross Genres and Chesha Burke, where we kind of do this a little bit, right? Some of the stories that we're going to reject, I mean, they haven't officially been rejected, but we've already made our minds about some of them, did things like that, where they decided to take this really unpleasant, really painful history, and then just insert a sort of romanticized version that was actually pretty harmful fake history. I'm not going to put, I think I actually wrote in, in the little chart that we're using to make our decisions, never, ever, ever, not with my name on it. I'm pretty sure, in fact, that's exactly what I wrote because that's not something I think that we should do. I think what we should do, if we're going to use that history and we're going to, you know, fictionalize it, we should still respect what actually happened and the people it happened to. We mm-hmm. shouldn't erase what was really going on as part of our storytelling. Sorry, I have a soapbox about that. Yeah. And, I mean, I talk about in reviews for historical romances a lot, like, 
this event did or didn't happen, that matters a little bit less to me. Generally, historical romance, you're not looking at big events that had a huge harmful effect on a whole bunch of people. But I, what I want is for the world to feel real. And part of that is making sure you have the food that people were eating right, or at least not wrong. Oh, the potato. Oh, the potato rage. It's a real thing. Potato rage, rage is a thing, people. Well, and see, I say that because maybe I have seen, like, the fascinating desire to make an actual Nazi commandant your romantic hero. Right. Um, <laughs> right. <laughs> I said generally, you don't look at the right. <laughs> sometimes I mean things happen. Right. And I mean how how you explore things is how you do that, but sometimes those things don't need to be put out into the world. Right. Yes. That is a good way to put it. Some thoughts some thoughts you should keep to yourself. It is A yeah. okay to write something and think this should never be see the light of day. Yeah. Because sometimes it shouldn't. And, like, I'm working on a thing right now where I, so far, have gotten, like, ten books for research purposes. And I keep getting more because I'm like, if I write this thing and I don't have the history right, people are going to jump on my head because of what I've said in the past. And also, I just need more historical cookbooks. I just do. This was really an excuse to get more historical cookbooks. Not just, but also... <laughs> so now now you know that we know you're full of shit, right? Okay, great. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I just oh, yeah. want to make sure. Yeah. But like the kind of the central plot complication is around 18th century smuggling, so I need to get a bunch of books on that and other books on what the right words for things on a ship are. Fortunately, okay. there are those books. Stuff like that. And just to, I mean, the the events that I'm looking at are, I'm making them up, but they're based, they're grounded in reality. And sort of the surrounding trappings, I want to be, at least feel real. And that involves knowing the words and knowing what people thought and ate and what they wore and what they cared about at the time and the fact that tea was taxed at 125% is kind of a thing. Actual number. Did not make that up. She really felt very strongly about that tea. <laughs> That's usually my job. Would you be kind of pissed off if you were like, I would like to buy some tea, but the tax is 125%, so I can't afford to buy the tea. So what the fuck am I going to drink? Apparently nothing. I would hey. sacrifice something to buy tea at that price tea's important well or you could you know have a revolution right <laughs> or just have somebody <laughs> smuggle it in and buy it at a third of the price no see yeah. we we had a revolution in russia i'm not sure what followed was better than what came before so. <laughs> see i'm just saying like our revolution just worked out kind of better for us sort of maybe not for the world right I mean, you know, there's a reason there's a whole song about being afraid of America. But to be fair, America spends all of its time fighting with someone. Right. People probably like it better when we're fighting with ourselves than Mm. with others. It's a theory. I could be wrong. I'm British. I have no moral high ground on that front. (laughs) That's true. (laughs) (laughs) 
you could just choose to be Scottish for this. Oh no! So she's a fake Scot. She's a fake Scot. Someone tried to claim to me during the independence referendum that Scotland had nothing to do with the British Empire. Mm. <laughs> like we were just dragged along unwillingly to colonize and enslave a large portion of the world. It was nothing to do with us. <laughs> I was like, oh, okay, honey, you keep telling yourself that. They they need that myth. They need it. It's important. Or something. I really, I've got nothing for you. Yeah. <laughs> I was making it up as I went along. Yeah. <laughs> There are a few um, traits more British than denial. <laughs> denial, arrogance, it's up there. <laughs> I thought that was Americans. Oh, no. It was kind of, was kind of passed down, you know. Yeah, where do you think right. we got it from? <laughs> That's valid. <laughs> I learned it from you, Mom! I learned, I it, learned from it from you! Watching, I learned it from watching you. <laughs> Queen Mom. Queen Mom. <laughs> I'm sorry. As, as your standard um, tacky American, I find the whole queen thing fascinating and sort of amusing, so, sorry. Oh, I do too, and I have to live under that um, monarchy system. It's, it's totally Technically, so do I. Yeah, that's true. It's a lot more of a technicality for me than for you, but it's still. So, alright, random American question, the whole monarchy system, because the politics confuse me. Why hasn't Canada decided it was tired of being, like... Canada was just like, okay, we'll just keep being with you. Sure. Everybody else wanted independence. We have basically independence, and it's, I guess... Okay, it's much more of a problem that we still have our Senate than for us to, you know, have this nostalgia pangs of having the Queen Mom and our money. Uh, because the Queen, like, the, the independence from monarchy is kind of this it's this arbitrary thing that doesn't affect us. We have a governor general who technically has no power, but has a lot of, you know, sir, does all the ceremonial stuff. And I think we're all okay with that. What we actually, the, the holdover system that is actually the bane of our political existence is that we have a bicameral parliament, but one of those chambers is not elected. It is appointed by the sitting prime minister. So we have our House of Commons, which are all the representatives we elect. And then we have the Senate, None of these people were elected by anyone, and yet they have the power to, you know, not put into power the laws that the House of Commons passes and make various other decisions that affect us. And this is actually a really big thing in this uh, upcoming election we're about to have. Yeah, we have that in the UK as well as the House of Lords, where basically if our Prime Minister can't get laws passed in the House of Commons, he will just keep filling more of, um, of his own party into the House of Lords so they can vote Which is the him. system that we inherited that we kind of want to disinherit now. Yeah, you learned it from us again. Yeah. So it's all the Brits' fault. Everything. Pretty much, yeah. But because we've now got Kate Middleton, everything seems to be a little bit better. It's like, yeah, it's a horrible, archaic, outdated, misogynistic, undemocratic system, but look, she's got babies now and babies are cute. I mean, <laughs> they are cute. I mean, I have no beef with that, but. <laughs> you know, she dresses well. She she smiles. She has great There's hair. Th right? Her hair is amazing. Princess shiny locks. It's, probably, it's not real, right? Like, there's extensions or, or something. Don't destroy the magic. No, she grew that out of her own head. <laughs> I mean. Right. <laughs> She definitely did not... You know, as cute as the babies are, do you remember the trouble that when she was pregnant with George and we didn't know if it was going to be George or a girl? 
and Britain was talking about changing laws so that the oldest we boy could just... We did change the law. They did. But, yeah, it was like the fastest so, the British government has ever actually done but it. But it wasn't enough. The thing is, you couldn't just change it in Britain because that baby would be the king of queen of like 20 or whatever other countries. There was a commission. We were all spending money to synchronize the passing of these laws. Like, it was a thing. Well, I mean, you needed to make sure that the future children of Princess Shiny Locks would be prepared. Right. It's Princess Shiny Locks. What do you... So first of all, now that I'm calling her Princess Shiny Locks, I I will probably have some sort of hysterical My Little Pony riff, and I'm going to blame you all. Okay. It's going to be your fault, Brent. It's going to be your fault. Look, I just have accepted throughout our friendship that 30% of everything is my fault. As long as you know. Because this is why I say this. Because now that I've been calling her Princess Shiny Locks in my head, something bizarre will happen and I'll meet her. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to call her Princess Shiny Locks to her face, and then I'm going to say it's your fault. Okay. Yeah, and then Kate Middleton will know who I am, so... Win! I don't know. I got nothing. I don't know. <laughs> the point is, I don't even... Where where were we oh, going t- at all? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what the point is! <laughs> I asked about, about um, Canadian politics, because apparently this is the podcast where... Whatever wanders through our brains is coming out of our faces today. It's not my fault. I have to boil water. No, that's standard. That's standard. Okay, Okay, good. That's that's how we work. (laughs) As as long as we we have a plan. That's all I require. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Uh, yeah, so Canada's Senate sucks. The House of Lords also kind of sucks. The American Senate sucks in a different way. Um, <laughs> it's not just our Senate that sucks. No. <laughs> no. Basically, our entire government sucks. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. I, um, I had the conversation with someone who really couldn't understand why Americans weren't more excited about voting. Um, and I was like, because we're picking between terrible choices. I don't know. Yeah. Canada is in the middle of I swear to God, the longest election cycle it has ha- federal election cycle it has had in like 150 years. How long has it been? Well, he if it's the less election than years. I'm not interested. The thing is, the election was call is scheduled in mid October, like by law. So it's happening then, and technically the parliament could continue sitting like through the summer. Like our elections usually last the thing. Like the, their campaign cycles are usually like a month. And he just, that's it. He closed the parliament. So he made, he made it he last like Harper. three months. Or he being Prime Minister Stephen Harper, who's, whose name I'm not repeating because it's like invoking Beetlejuice. Pause. <laughs> did she say three months though? Yeah, she did say three months. I'm going to make fun of you forever. Yeah. Forever. Yeah. Because, you know, we're not, our primary season doesn't even start until... January, and yeah. we already had the first debate. We've had several first debates. Yeah. And um, there's still time as we look at Trump, which is like invoking. I'm not going to say what that's like invoking because someone will judge me. But um, as right. we look at, at, at Trump's little campaign, Sally, and all of it, we are looking down the barrel of a full, like, what, two years of this crap? Mm hmm. 
So we we have our sympathies are limited. It's not your fault, but we really like your system looks better <laughs> to us right now. You don't have Donald Trump running though. Well, this is happening in in the UK right now. We're about to vote for the new leader of the Labour Party, who are the opposition and the member. And I'm a member of this party. So we opened up the system so that you could become a supporter of the party for £3 and vote for the leadership elections. But then it became very clear that the very left-wing candidate is going to win. So they decided that suddenly their party had been infiltrated by Conservatives and they needed to weed all of those people out to make sure they couldn't vote. But it just seemed like they were mostly getting rid of people who want to vote for the very left-wing guy. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, democracy has just entirely left the party I'm a member of, which is really, really depressing. But he's still going to win. I somehow, however, until this moment, didn't know that you paid £3 to vote. I'm fascinated by the idea of paying to vote. Well, this would be like a primary or leadership. Yeah, this is party leadership. Yeah, no, 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 I know, but even to vote for leadership, like, I, it wouldn't, you'd have to pay dues or something, sure, depending upon your organization, but paying to be able to vote, paying your three pounds to vote, the way you say it, it's just like, huh, the way that's, the way politics works elsewhere. <laughs> well, this was about, because very, very few people in the UK, it's something like less than 10% are members of a political party. So they wanted to make the process more open to people who wanted to be involved in politics but weren't quite ready to become a full-blown member. But now they've, they've suddenly realised, oh, wait, this means that people will so, actually be able to vote for who they want. It's not what we wanted at all. Uh, we wanted them to vote for the other three because apparently they're more electable, even though they are not able to win an election against this other guy. It's an absolute mess. And I need it to be over very quickly so that we can get our fun left-wing candidate who looks like a really irate geography teacher. <laughs> That's a very specific description. <laughs> he does. I will totally send you a picture so you know what he looks like. An irate geography teacher, though. I, I gotta remember that. Yeah. <laughs> How are we talking about Scottish politics? Who do we blame for this? That's not even Scottish. That's British. If you want Scottish, I can go on for hours. <laughs> <laughs> That's a whole other can of worms. Whiskey and politics gang together. I just that that the the accent blew all the way in. Yeah. All the way in. I was I was suddenly in in an, in an ep of something. I don't know what, but something. It was awesome. <laughs> I provide a service. To be fair, there your accent probably sounds like that to Kaylee. Does it? Very American, yeah. Huh. I'm never sure if I sound American or Southern. Because I'm, you, I live in Chicago, but my family's from Mississippi, yada, 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 and, and further south. And so I have a Chicago accent, which can make it very complicated. Yeah, I'm not familiar enough with the the black Chicago accents to be able to go, oh yeah, you totally sound Chicago. There's a couple of vowels you say that are like southern flavored a little bit. Well, we think we're the northern south. Yeah. So. Yeah, um, but like just the way you said south right there is super Midwestern. Well, yeah. Because, <laughs> you know. Well, you've got your you've got your Indiana, you've got the beers. Yeah, you've the got. Bears. You know, um, 
AAVE, all of these things. Code switching gets really interesting in Chicago. I probably do sound very middle-class black Chicago, which is different. Mm -hmm. And now the the folks who are not from here are like, what the hell was all of that? Sorry. Can we segue this back to comics? I don't know. I don't know. Sure. <laughs> I mean, we can just we can just take a hard right. <laughs> right. It doesn't have to be a segue. We can be like, okay, we've wandered far afield. Let's go back to comic books. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, I admit that I am primarily a Marvel girl at this point. But the, the books that I keep buying are things like Ms. Marvel and Hawkeye Ooh. and Black Widow. Ms. Marvel is wonderful. Ms. Marvel is amazing. Oh, that is the one uh, Swords of Sorrow issue I have read is the one shot that G. Willow Wilson did. I will read anything that her name is attached to. G. Willow Wilson is amazing. And of course I have all of Sandman because I was in my 20s once. <laughs> I am I have, fascinated as to how they're going to make that into a film because it's not even going to be a TV series. It's going to be a film. I thought they were they were doing it as TV series. That's no, what... it's being made into a film, and Joseph and Gordon Levitt is directing it. Huh. Well, I For was interested. <laughs> <laughs> I was, but it's Joseph Gordon Levitt. This can only go wrong. I mean, I think I think he has some good instincts as a director. I'm not too sure how well they're going to translate with Sandman. Just, oh, also, David S. Goyer is producing and possibly writing it, so you know my my hopes are at the window. Okay. <laughs> well, it was exciting while while we could have that dream. Yeah, <laughs> we dreamed a dream. We dreamed a dream, and. I have read Watchmen because, of course, I've read Watchmen. Everyone reads Watchmen. I think it's yeah. required. Yeah, pretty much. I think it's really one of the sort of intro comics for a lot of people, just because it's the one that they've heard of. And it's I think it's the only comic on Time's 100 greatest pieces of literature of the 20th century, which I have questions about. But I think it's a structurally fascinating piece of work that is descends quite quickly into trolling because it's Alan Moore. Yeah. But I, I am generally ready for the comics industry to hop off of Alan Moore's dick because even Alan Moore is ready to hop off of Alan Moore's dick. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just saying we need to get over the killing joke. Like, seriously. We do. Yeah. But I'm... This is the only time in my life we've had a discussion of Alan Moore's dick. And I'm glad that this is it. I feel like this is a discussion he has daily with his <laughs> I just Red, where have you brought me? <laughs> I like it's a weird place. This is it happens. I can't I never in my life thought I would be discussing Alan Murstick. I just I didn't <laughs> And yet here you are. I wasn't prepared. Look, you can't be prepared for these kinds of discussions. That's valid. I mean, I'll accept that. I'm just saying, guys, the killing joke is nowhere near as good as everyone says it is. No, the that's sheer true. level of protectiveness that so many, let's be honest, white guys have over that comic is astounding. And well, I'm still pissed off that they made, you know, Barbara Gordon being paralyzed, you know, canon. And in the words of that editor, he said, what was it, cripple the bitch? I think was the term he used to describe. Yeah. yeah. And even Alan Moore has later said, I wish he hadn't let me do that. 
like when Alan Moore is the man with self-awareness in your discussion, there's a problem. And of course, now they're making it into an animated film because, of course, and well, it's a big influence on Jared Leto because, ugh, Jared Leto. We we have strong feelings about Jared Leto around here. I, yeah, he's my he's that. my new arch nemesis. Him and James Franco. <laughs> I thought it was Eddie Redmayne. Oh, that's a whole other discussion. <laughs> no, Eddie Redmayne is my arch nemesis. I'm happy to have others on team, but his face bothers me. So you're just gonna have to deal with the fact that I don't I don't get it. Also, can we have the Benedict Cumberbatch discussion? Oh, and by oh, that, oh, oh, oh boy, oh, you you just opened a can oh. of worms. Kaylee, go get the rosé because you're gonna need it. <laughs> What is the Benedict Cumberbatch love? What is it? Someone explain it to me because he looks like a ferret. Because he's posh, he's wealthy, he's a white British guy and he fits the perfect stereotype that a lot of people, no offence, primarily Americans have about what British guys are supposed to be like. We have so many other really attractive, posh, white British guys to offer the world. We have Damien Lewis, guys. You can have him. We have Dominic West. We've got him too. But no, you, you've, you've all decided on Cumberbatch. Who I think is actually really good at playing absolute arseholes, but he doesn't do it very often these days. Yeah, see, so maybe this is because when I was in the army, I met a lot of British guys. So Benedict Cumberbatch to me does not actually look like an attractive British dude. I met a lot of attractive British dudes. Thank you, U.S. military. They, don't, they didn't look like him. So I've, I've been trying to work out the Benedict Cumberbatch love... I think think it's sort of rooted in that very particular kind of love that you have, especially when you're a teenager. It's like, well, I don't like the conventionally attractive men. I like slightly stranger. Right. I I I honestly, okay. I just had a thought and I'm going to, I'm going to sort of dissect it a bit and you're just going to have to kind of bear with me while I do this. But I think I can tie this back to Twilight a little bit. (laughs) Uh Shall I show my work? Yes. Yes. Let's see the spider diagram. (laughs) Okay, so the first season of Sherlock hit American TVs just as Twilight, the movie series, was wrapping up. And you have another pretentiously rumpled dude who's an ass who has somebody following him around going, oh my god, you're so brilliant, so you're so amazing. And because Moffat put some sort of crack pheromone that gets young adult women all up in his business and thinking that he's the most brilliant person who ever brillianted, that it ties into that. And they were looking for something new to latch on once Twilight and Arpats ran into his cave saying, go away for the love of fuck, leave me alone. I mean, (laughs) okay. That it does make sense, I guess, because to me, so I was a shallow teenager. I was thoroughly, unembarrassingly shadow, shallow. You had to be this tall, and by this tall, I mean six feet to ride this ride. Broad shoulders, narrow waist. I am your typical Midwestern girl. Okay, okay, great. I understood the love of the boys on Supernatural. Mm-hmm. It was a little bizarre after a while, but I could at least see the roots. I, I could they could I could see their work. I actually really didn't like Edward in Twilight. I didn't like Jacob either after a while. I didn't like Bella. I didn't like anybody by the end. But 
I could see in the first book what was sort of compelling about that whole broody boy thing that you think you could make happier. It got lost really quick. But you at least see Edward smile and be a decent human sometimes, or decent, not a human, but whatever. <laughs> Less so with Sherlock. With Sherlock, I disliked, I, I really like elementary, I really don't like Sherlock. You don't like him, and at least for me, he never grew warmer, more interesting, more attractive. He was just pretty much awful. So I guess that's why I've been sort of lost. But I guess if you lay it out that way, the girls who really liked Edward's jerkish ways found their new buddy. Now I get it. And then you get to add on the extra slash fic value of Sherlock that is not there for Twilight. Yep. Which, yeah. it's, it's, it's Tumblr B. I mean, it fits so perfectly into the, for those who like Doctor Who in its Moffat mold right now, I don't. And for those who like Supernatural. So I get that. I mean, in Cumberbatch's credit, at least he seems like a generally nice person, unlike, say, oh, I don't know, Martin Freeman. Yeah. Who's just yeah. a bastard. He's yeah. made some really racist comments in the past about Muslims in Britain and multiculturalism. He's one of those people. Oh, well, see, this way I get to feel virtuous about the fact that I've always found him quasi-loathsome for no apparent reason. Yeah. I think the internet discovered this when on the Hobbit set interview, uh, he gave an answer about, like, oh, he'd totally date rape an elf. Yeah. Throwing that out. Yeah. 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 That is when your fave became problematic. Mm. See, I never understood him being a fave, but I've also, like, I've just never cared for him in anything he's been in. He was part of my original lack of interest in Sherlock. It was like, oh, you're in it. I don't like you. <laughs> I, I think he's, I think he's, he's good at acting. I think he was really great in Fargo. In Fargo, but, he gets to play an absolute bastard folk. It's exactly. Perfect. exactly. I don't know about the accent, but everything else was fine. The accent's kind of dodgy. <laughs> I know that accent, and he didn't quite have it. I think, yeah. I think that's valid, is that it is... I guess because to me it was one of those things where for no particularly good reason I just never cared for him. I saw him in Fargo he was a, a jerk in Fargo and sometimes you develop an antipathy to an actor based on a character and I think I'd always assumed mm. it would go away and then I heard about his comments and his, his politics and I was like oh good I don't have to feel bad for disliking you <laughs> everyone else really likes you and I just don't I just really I wish you'd get off my screen so now I can avoid Sherlock and Sherlock fandom and feel no guilt. There we go. For a further discussion on Sherlock versus Elementary, please see episode number something. I don't remember <laughs> what it was. But you didn't complain when Watson was a mouse is the title of that episode. Cartoon mouse. Important. Important. <laughs> I will say about the Cumberbatch thing to tie it back, I think for a large subset of Americans, but also British people, the class element is a big thing. The image of a British man they have is of a rather upper middle class British man or just upper class in some of their cases. Mm -hmm. So he has to have that particular accent and that particular look. So someone like Eddie Redmayne. Eddie Redmayne went to Eton with Prince William. You know, That's the kind of background that he's from. Actually, if you look at some of the major British actors working right now, they all seem to have gone to Eton. There's a serious lack of class and racial and gender diversity with British actors right now. They all seem to be coming out of private schools. So I think there's just something that is very appealing to people who aren't familiar with the British class system there, whereas I just find it entirely insufferable, unless it's Damien Lewis. 
<laughs> now, see, I love Tom Hiddleston, but I don't understand how he got cast as a Southern American country singer. Um, because fangirls love him and nothing because, else. Because he's, mm-hmm. yeah, he's going to make them way more money than they would have made without him. Well, and it's one of those things where the go-to guy for that role for a long time, Chris Kane, am I saying his name right? Uh, from, um, from Leverage. Leverage. Yeah. Yes, Leverage. Yeah. yeah. So for a long time, Chris Kane was the go-to guy for that. And Chris Kane, I think, has reached a point where while he enjoys the music, I don't necessarily know that he really, really loves acting in the same way, or at least loves the, the attached publicity. Right, mm-hmm. I think he's kind of enjoying the relative. I have my money, I have my band, and I don't actually have to have people scream at me when they see me on the street. Let's go with that. Let's let's go with that. You know, because I think that's part of it is that Cumberbatch and some of these others they're super on board for the mega superstar thing. I think for the actors who they're sort of replacing because of age and time or whatever. A lot of them have had the experience and are now like, oh, I could just have my money and avoid the paparazzi all the way. Mm. Let's do that. Yeah, I think Hiddleston is pretty much used to the women screaming and fainting in front of him. Uh, Cumberbatch, to a lesser extent, he has had to tell people while he is <laughs> on stage as Hamlet, please put your cameras away for God's sake. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to act. Right. Mm-hmm. And he's had to say things like, Please don't live tweet my movements through my house. Mm-hmm. <gasps> yeah. I had a I had a Cumberbatch truffer come after me on Twitter one time because I made a comment about how I feel quite sorry for his wife because of all the crap that she has to put up with from some of his crazy fans. He was like, "Oh, he doesn't really love her. She's just marrying him for publicity." And I was like, "Are you okay? Why are you <laughs> oh, here?" You get- you get that with the Supernatural boys. Oh, God. Oh, yeah. Oh, and yeah. They, got, they got so weird that they tried to drive one of them, one of the women. I can't remember which one's fiance it was. But they really tried to drive her away from a signing. They were offended that she had the nerve to be at the signing with him. Yeah. And I was like, so I need you to come back to reality and understand that that's a person with a life. This is his job. She's a person with a life. Yeah. Hanging out with her dude. What the hell is wrong with you? They are not commodities for you to own. Yes. This is a very simple concept. All right. I think we've uh, sort of wandered (laughs) all over the place. (laughs) When have we ever stayed on tangent for any podcast we have ever done ever? Not, not ever, not ever. I but mean, we talked about comics. We did. We talked about writing. Yep. We talked about celebrities and politics. Yep. And food. And food. I feel like this was a very well-rounded discussion. Absolutely. We talked about booze too. Right, and I made fun of you, so I'm, I'm good. Well, yeah. So everybody's, everybody got what they wanted. <laughs> I hope. <laughs> um. So. Where can people find you so on the internet, you, not in real life? Because that's just weird. Don't do that. Don't do I that. wasn't going to answer that question. I, I know. I'm telling people, don't. Don't. Yeah. Just don't. Don't. Come on. Come on. I really, please don't. <laughs> also, 
I had someone do this recently, so it's time for the quarterly reminder. If you have met me before at some event, but we do not actually know each other, and I mean actually know each other as in you've been to my house or I've fed you or things of this nature, do not walk up behind me and touch me. Do not walk up behind me and touch me. Do not walk up behind me and touch me. Because when you put your hands on me from behind, I'm going to react like you're a stranger. Because to me, you are. This is important. Write that down. And actually, even if you know me, you should maybe make sure I know you're coming. It would be good. Yeah. It's possible I almost flipped somebody in the middle of the street. Sorry. Uh, <laughs> they know who they are. Uh, but you can find me at MickeyKendall.com, HoodFeminism.com, Carnethia on Twitter, and, I don't know, a wide variety of other places. I've written for The Post, Time.com, Ebony, Essence, The Guardian. I'm forgetting places, ExoJane. There'll be some other stuff. It'll come up later. And, of course, you can go buy my comic on Wednesday. Yes, so you, you totally should. should. You should yeah. definitely do that. Go buy my Swords of Sorrow one-shot on Wednesday. That's the thing that's most important. Thanks so much for being here. You're great. We're so lucky that Raiden just knows everybody. Yeah. <laughs> yes, awesome guest. Yeah, they, they asked, so how do you know her? Like, how do you know her well enough to just invite her? I'm like, oh, we're OG live journal friends. <laughs> live journal means we all know each other. Are you kidding? <laughs> you weren't on live journal. You weren't anywhere. <laughs> Good times. All right. This has been episode 35. Five. Five. Yes. 35 of, thank you, of Anglo Feast. We're sorry it's a bit late, but uh, summer scheduling has been a little nutty for everybody. And we will see you all next month. Bye. 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 Mickey, you got to say bye. Bye. Okay. I said bye. I said I bye quietly you. and politely. You're terrible. I'm the worst. You are. Bye. Bye. <laughs> you have been listening to Anglophies, a made of fail production. You know, you're just really. We've let you get awful mouthy. <laughs> That's okay. I have the power to edit that out now. Yeah, but you're not gonna. No, but <laughs> I could. I have the power to edit it out. I'm keeping it. Alright. <laughs> Thanks for telling us you have the power to not do the thing you weren't gonna... Uh, where are we going with that? I don't know. <laughs>